So Judges chapter 17, verse 7 to verse 13. And you should have an outline that says, The danger of self-service. The danger of self-service. That's what we're looking at this evening. Now, if you follow the news, you know that Amazon recently opened its doors to the first ever cashierless grocery store in the U.S. I mean, this is uh, everyone's dream. The the, the store is meant to be the ultimate in self-service. The idea is that you can go in the store, grab the items, and walk out of the store without even interacting with the employees or even using your card. Uh, It's literally in and out. That's the new store that Amazon is working on. And Amazon says that they're using computer vision, mathematical algorithms, and sensor fusion uh, to create the ultimate experience in self-service. It sounds a bit impersonal to me. I mean, part of the fun of going into uh, Morrison's or Sainsbury's is to have a chat with people, isn't it? And to know what's going on. And queuing up is part of a good... I don't think this store is going to tick off in the UK. Because, you know, the British love a good queue. So, <laughs> but in the U.S., you know, it's quick. You know, they have drive through things there. Uh, you know, drive through McDonald's and all that kind of thing. So they are looking at this cashierless thing. Now, people are very excited about this, particularly uh, in the U.S., because there is something in all of us that loves the idea of saving ourselves without worrying about anyone. In fact, it is part of who we are. You know, many of us would prefer... Most of us would prefer to be self-employed, if we could, uh, than have to answer to some authority at work who tells us how to do things. Why are we like that? I I think the reason is that all of that goes back to the Garden of Eden. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God made us stewards, uh, to, as his viceroys, if we like. But even without responsibility to do things and organize the world in the way we like, under his rule, we were not satisfied. We decided to reject God, didn't we? We decided to go for self-service. Rather than serving God, we chose to serve ourselves. It's been that case. Since sin entered our worlds, human beings find it difficult to serve God. God will appoint us to do something, and sooner or later, no matter how noble the task, we are already living for ourselves. We change the job to be about us, rather than God. Now, this morning, we started looking at the story of Micah in Judges chapter 17, and we looked verse 1 to verse 6. Now, and if you all, you know, nearly all of you were here this morning, and I mentioned that Judges really is, is one book going from chapter 1 to verse, to chapter 16, and from chapter 17 to 21, it's really an annex and this story of Micah actually is taking place earlier on in the book of Judges. Perhaps if we are rewriting the book, you, the author of Judges, if he was rewriting it, he may even have chosen to place it perhaps just after chapter 1. Because it belonged to the early days of the Judges, perhaps during the judgeship of Othaniel. So we looked at verse 1 to verse 6. Well, what we learned this morning is that all believers attempted like Micah to practice a selfish religion. A selfish religion. And we say that we attempted to make our worship of God to be about us. Yes, we are worshiping God, but we make it about us rather than God himself. 
Well, this evening we are continuing finishing this story to learn the second temptation we face, and that is self-service. To serve ourselves rather than God. All of us face the danger of self-service. So, look with me at verse 7 of Judges, chapter 17, and the first truth in your outline that we learn here is that all people of God want to be useful, to be useful for God. Now, this morning we saw Micah's new religion, funded by his mother, <laughs> has grown. <laughs> it has a, he's got a few idols and he has installed his own priest. We see that in verse 5 to verse 6. Micah has got a few idols in verse 5 there. And that is where we left things in verse 5. Now, the author of Judges now, like a film director, switches his camera to a young man on the road leaving Bethlehem. And as the camera zooms, we see this young man is looking downcast. Life perhaps seems like it's been hard on him. And where is he going? Well, he's looking for a new home, somewhere to live. And when we look closely, if you're watching this almost this as a video, when we look closely, we can see this young man is dressed in white and he's dressed in priestly robes. We see cross that this man is actually a Levite, a homeless Levite in search of a new home. And here is how Judges chapter 17, verse 7 puts it. Look at me, verse 7 to verse 8. Now there is a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. So he's become attached to a clan in Judah, and he sojourned there. So he doesn't live there. He's just been traveling to Bethlehem. And they say it says, And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. Now, this is most unexpected because if you know anything about Levites, is that Levites come from where? The tribe of Levi, of course. Right? And the tribe of Levi, God has set apart the tribe of Levi from other tribes so that they could function as priests. Uh, so that they didn't have to do any other work. They just, their job is to be priests, to serve at the tabernacle. And Moses had allocated how many cities? 48 cities for them. You can find the details in Numbers 35, verse 1, and Joshua chapter 20, verse 1. And these cities, that, these 48 cities that God had, had given the Levites, they were distributed all across Israel. And the reason was that, that they were evenly distributed across Israel is that they were meant to be so that people can access the Levites if they needed help. In a way in which people access a pastor or, or, or maybe the local counselor. Because if you need help, you can go to a Levite and he could give you any help you needed. Now, the key point I want to, to show you here is that Bethlehem, where this man is coming from, is not one of the 48 cities. It seems somehow this Levite has wandered his way to Bethlehem. And, and probably the reason he's done this is because, you see, at this time in Israel, apostasy is everywhere. People have abandoned God. And it seems that this Levite is even struggling to find employment. So he's moving from one place to the other in search of employment. That is what idolatry has done to Israel. Even this man, this Levite, by the way, this Levite, is, his name is Jonathan. And we find out his name in Judges chapter 18, verse 30. 
That's important because this man is not an ordinary Levite. He's the grandson, we might even say, of Moses. He's a descendant of Moses. You could find that uh, from um, in verse, um, Judges 18, verse 30. And even the situation has got so bad in Israel that this man with, 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 a, with, with an ancestor like Moses is jobless as well. And he's looking, he's doing job hunting, looking why he can do work as a priest. Now we should make an important point here that Jonathan desires to be useful for God. And the Bible does not condemn him for first traveling to Judah from wherever he used to live. And then from Judah, from, from Judah in Bethlehem, he's now wandering to come to where Micah lives. It is a good thing for us to desire to be useful for God. All people of God are meant to serve God. All true followers of Jesus are part of a new royal priesthood called to use our gifts for God. Now, if you're sat here this evening and you have no desire to serve God, there's something wrong with you. Because if you're a true follower of Jesus, you will want to do what? Follow Jesus. And following Jesus means serving the king. So I want to ask you this question. This, as our first question we ask is, do you have a genuine desire to be useful for God? Is there a burning desire in your heart? I'm not saying, are you able to do it? The Lord will enable you to do it. But do you have a burning desire? You know, I need to be useful for God. I need to share the gospel. Or I need to help out in the church somehow. Or I need to just ensure that my life is being poured out in service to Christ. Do you have that? Are you looking even actively to serve God? Because if you don't, that's a big issue. If there's no burning desire within you, it may even mean that you're not truly converted, you're not truly following Jesus. Because you see all people of God, even Jonathan, in the Old Testament, desire to be useful for God. And that's a great thing, isn't it? That's a good thing, right? It's great, right? That must be a good thing. Well, the problem is that, and this is our second point, is that even though we, we, it's a good thing to desire to serve God, we often serve God for selfish reasons. We often serve for selfish reasons. That's the second point. All people of God want to be useful, but we often serve for selfish reasons. So let's rejoin our man, Jonathan. He's on a journey, and soon he finds himself... Knocking on Micah's door. Let's read verse. We left that in the middle of verse 8. Let's read verse 8. It says, And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to Surgeon, where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. It's like one of those horror movies. I mean, he's come to Micah's house, and verse 9 tells us, And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. Now, now what we don't know, of course, the Bible doesn't tell us, is well, this is all an accident. Uh, as it just happened that somehow this man has found himself knocking on Micah's door, or is it by design? As Micah, perhaps, having amassed a new religion, 
is now reflecting around the area. You know, there's a vacancy for a real Levite. Uh, we don't really know. We, we don't know. But what it doesn't, in a way, it doesn't really matter. The reason it doesn't matter is that Micah now thinks it's Christmas. He thinks Christmas has come early. This is actually the man he wants. He's employed his son as a priest. We see that in verse 5. But this is the man he really wants. He has started the church of Micah, but he has no glamour. You see? To really make this thing grow, he needs to hire a real educated pastor. And not just any pastor. Micah is so excited because this is a descendant of Moses. You know, hiring Jonathan will be like having a son of Spurgeon as your pastor. Imagine if you had Spurgeon's son as your pastor, a descendant. How many people would you get in the church? Lots of them, right? We have people flocking to central London to Spurgeon's church. If he had a son, it would be massive. You get so many visitors, and, and Micah knows this, and he grabs it with both hands. Look at verse 10. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. Verse 11 says, well, let's just uh, pause there for a minute. We should not there. Uh, verse 11 says this, actually. And the Levite was content to dwell with a man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. We see what has happened here is that Micah has offered this young man a deal of a lifetime. He says, you know, <laughs> I'm going to give you, you know, you're going to have a share, you know, your clothes will be provided for you. Uh, you, you gonna, you're going to get food, okay? So you don't have to worry about that. Food, clothing, right? That's all to spend the money on, right? And on top of this, I'll give you 10 pounds. Now, he's a Levite, so he's probably not going to spend it on leisure. That's just for saving for his retirement fund. So this is a great deal. And Micah has probably even said, you know, you know you're going to be just like my, my father. I'm going to honor you. He's, he's flattering this guy. He's pouring cash on him. And it's an incredible offer. And we're not surprised that the man accepts this. He goes in. Verse 11 tells us, doesn't it? Verse 10 ends and says, and the Levite went in. And verse 11 says, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. He's gone in happily. Now, we have to remember that on the, the Levite on the surface looked like he was genuinely seeking to be useful for God, right? But he has turned out to be a pastor for sale. I mean, he must know about the idols. And yet, he knows that he's against God. This is the wrong church for him to be part of. But he's joined in. And I think, I suspect, you know, Jonathan here is probably thinking he's actually even serving God rather than money. I'm pretty sure if you went there and interviewed him, what are you doing here? He would say, I'm serving the Lord. This is the Lord's work. Even though there are idols all over the place, even though he's a briefcase chasing pastor, he doesn't think he is. And as I thought about this point, I thought, isn't this the tragedy of many of us who claim to serve God? Especially many of us who are in paid ministry. We are often blind that we are motivated by our selfishness. There is no single pastor you will interview 
who will tell you they're in it for the money? I mean, if you on TV might tell you that. But really, few will. And you know, when we think about people who are in, in ministry, like myself, I guess, people who are in paid ministry, these self-serving Christian leaders, they're a broad spectrum, okay? It's a broad spectrum. On the one extreme, we have the shiny suits ministers. I mentioned this morning, right? The charlatans on television and YouTube. You know, I mentioned the Kenneth Copelands and Benny Hinn and Joe Austin and Maurice Cerullo and, and I have to say countless, countless, countless many African pastors now. I mean, they're just everywhere. You can't, you can't escape a TV channel without seeing one. That's one extreme. They are in it for the money. And we, for them, these false teachers, their God is their belly. Right? And many of them have amassed large sums of money in the name of God. And some of them have even fallen foul of the law. So we can be quite confident that many people, many pastors, are in it for the money. And that is the one extreme. Right? But the problem is we only think of the other extreme, that extreme. There is the other end as well. At the other end, we have pastors. They are not in shiny suits, right? We have pastors, even, I should say, in our own tradition, who would do anything to grow their churches. You know, recently I heard about one of our churches putting on an Halloween show. As I've been a pastor now for... You're counting, I guess, I'm counting, since 17 months. Um, 18 months. I have, what I've seen in some of our churches is shocking. The lack of church discipline. Do you know why pastors don't practice church discipline? To make their churches large. Because you see, if you have Christians who are truly loving God and serving Him, there will be fewer in the church. So pastors intentionally to for job security purposes turn a blind eye to sin in their churches. I've seen it in our own churches. In our own association. The danger of self-service. So you've got extreme shiny suits. You've got pastors who do it of course more subtly. To have a secure income. And I might even say you've got now, uh, if often pastors who even mean well, of course, even take on these itinerant ministries, isn't it? Such strong temptation. Moving from church to church preaching. You feel you're serving God in that itinerant ministry, but the Lord knows. <laughs> and you probably know sometimes that money is an issue as well. The more you preach, the more money you get, and the temptation is always there. The danger of self-service is to all of us, including to myself. As I have been preparing this message, I have asked myself some questions. Why am I in ministry? Is it to show my gifts? Is it to win the applause of the church that has hired me? Perhaps like Micah, I had the priest. 
There's an application, by the way, about how we hire pastors. I think reading this, there's a problem about the concept of hiring pastors, I think. But uh, maybe when I preach this sermon for the second time. But I've asked myself this question. Am I in ministry to win the applause of the church that has hired me? Or because I truly love Christ and to see Him glorified? Is my service and preaching motivated in growing our church large that in time it may make my job easier? You know, we have a larger church, there are more elders and therefore I can rest a bit more. Is that my motivation? I have to ask myself honest question. Because sometimes I mourn, I'm carrying on a lot of burden sometimes. And I have to ask my own heart, where is that coming from? Is that a longing for comfort there? Am I try, are we trying to make the church grow? Am I, is my heart trying to make the church grow? Perhaps, or perhaps the church gives me a pay rise in the future. Is there a constant desire in my heart to move from church to church? To collect preaching gifts and showcase my gift? Am I content to serve in a small church or am I preaching for a conference lot somewhere? These are questions that I have been asking myself as I've been preparing this message. And I ask myself quite often. And as I stand here, I, it's easy for me to acquit myself and say, well, I think I can rule these things out. But friends, that's missing the point. Because these are not just my questions. These questions are also for you. Because the church must constantly ask these questions of the pastor it has. Because you see, my heart is deceitful. And I may think I am not a pastor for sale, but I may be utterly deceived. I'm pretty sure Jonathan, as I said, thinks he's not a priest for sale. I'm pretty sure when I speak to some of the pastors I've seen that are doing all kinds of compromises, they will say they are not pastors for sale. So, but our churches have a responsibility, therefore, to hold their pastor to full account, to ensure that the pastor's motives are not leading him astray. The church has a responsibility to constrain the pastor, to ask, Pastor, why are you going on this conference? What is that about? How does it add value to us as a church? What is moving your heart? You must ask tough questions of me, and you must ask tough questions of anyone serving in the church, especially those preaching here. Friends, don't be content to have anyone in this church preach you from that pulpit without asking tough questions about their lives. You are not causing trouble by saying, is your life right? You must do that because if you don't do that, you are complicit. You are complicit. We have many non-believers that come in this church and if you are not asking such questions, you are literally complicit in sending them to hell. Because the issue is not that the pastor can't stand up here and preach good stuff. I think a person in sin can do that. But the point is that if we're living in sin, our message will not have power because the Holy Spirit will not accompany it. And therefore it's important we ask pastors, we ask anyone preaching, but we also ask the same of people serving in other areas of the church. Sunday school. We must ask. 
Are people in Sunday school or serving in Sunday school doing it for Christ or for them? Is it a leisure activity? Or are they consumed by the love of Christ? Because if they're not, then our children, when they come to Sunday school, will not be impacted by the gospel. We should ask even for people sweeping, isn't it? Cleaning the place, because how you clean showcases the glory of God, isn't it? And therefore, in any area of church life, we must ask this question. Why should we ask it? Because of the second point. Because self-service worships man, not God. So we often serve for selfish reasons. That's point number two. Why does it matter? Because why it matters? Because self-service worships man, not God. That's why it's a big deal. So Jonathan, let's go back to Jonathan. Jonathan has reached a deal, right? And immediately, Micah performs the welcome service and restores our man as the house pastor. Look at this, 12. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Now the man who not long ago (laughs) was stealing money from his mother (laughs) is now the head of a new cult with a touch of glamour. It's quite a turnaround for good old Micah. And notice how the author of Judges described this new arrangement now. Notice what Micah has come up with. He said the young man became his priest. And this is, this Jonathan is now owned by Micah. He's not a priest of God, he's a priest of man. All of this episode, of course, from stealing the money to building his shrine to hiring the priest has only been one about one thing, isn't it? To come to this position where he owns a priest, and once he owns this priest, he thinks that God will bless him. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. I haven't really thought this one through as I was preparing the notes, but isn't this how churches think? <laughs> I mean, it's a side application. We, we interview a pastor. And then we say to ourselves, now we can move forward. Now we can move forward. It's all very human. Micah is trusting this liver to bring... Of course, he's forgotten the whole thing. is an abomination to God. But he's so deluded in his head. He believes God is pleased with his idols and the new priest he has co-opted. It's a tragedy. Micah is worshipping himself. Jonathan is now worshipping Micah, basically. I don't know where Mrs. Micah is at this moment, but she, I guess she's like the queen mother of this religion. Because she came up with, she finds this thing from my 1100 shekels. Now, none of us here this evening have gone to the length of what Micah has done. But friends, all of us face the same danger. Because you see, anytime we serve God with a divided heart, we are serving ourselves other than God. You need to ask yourself this question. If God has given you any area of service, at work, here, anywhere, are you doing it with a divided heart? Or are you doing it for the Lord? 
And especially in the life of the church, if you're doing with a divided heart. And, and look, it's a perfectly separate sermon, but all of us know what a divided heart is, isn't it? There's no joy in doing it. We're always mourning about, ooh, ooh, you know, we're always going on about. If, if that's your posture, your heart is divided. If that's your posture, then you are serving man rather than God. And the truth is that all of us are guilty of doing this from time to time. Oh, friends, here, who can truly say here that you serve God always with a pure motive? And the tragedy is that it's not just sometimes we see this selfishness in us. Most of, our, most of the time, we're not even aware we are doing it. I mean, most of the time, I'm not even aware I'm doing it for myself. It only takes a pause, perhaps somebody makes a comment, I mean, just checking Am I really doing this for the Lord or myself? And then it checks in. But most of the time, we do it for ourselves. For our own ego and pride. And it's difficult to detect it. That's the problem. Poor David Tripp says this. The most dangerous idols for all of us are those that are easily Christianized. Selfishness is most dangerous when it masquerades as service. Self-focus is most powerful when it dons the costume of love. Earthly treasures are most seductive when they take on the appearance of spiritual need. Idols do their nastiest work when they wear the latex mask of God. Did you hear that? Idols do their nastiest work when they wear the latex mask of God. You see, too often we think we are serving God, as I said, when we are just serving ourselves. And the problem is that we are convinced we are serving God. It's a bit like Dan in the morning. He was convinced he was already a Christian. And it doesn't matter what you tell Dan, it won't change. And this is the issue with us. We are so convinced we are serving God. We are so... No no matter what anyone tells us that we are being selfish, we won't... Pick it up. And so until we acknowledge that we are blind to our idolatry, blind to our selfishness, blind to our worship of ourselves, we will not seek repentance from this evil. We will not turn away from our selfishness. So all of us here this evening, friends, do a self-diagnostic in whatever area God has called you. Whatever responsibility, you know what God has given you. Ask yourself this evening, am I worshipping God with this or just myself? Until you do that, you will not benefit from the good news of this passage. Brother Michael, there is good news in this passage. And the good news is our final point, isn't it? Christ has paid for our self-service. Christ has paid for our self-service. If you've been with us in Judges, we have been asking a single question. Why is the story here in the Bible? You have to ask that question of every passage in the Bible. Why is it here? And the answer is that it is here to show Israel and us that we need Jesus. Some passages in the Bible are so difficult to read. You think, what's going on here? I'm looking for Jesus. I can't see him. But they are there to show our, the nature of our sin, how difficult it is, so we can look to the cross. It is here to remind us that it is not just the ordinary 
folk in Israel, you know, it's not ordinary judges or the ordinary folk in Israel who fail to live for God. Even the Levites, God's priests became corrupted. And it is a warning for us today, isn't it? The sin we see around, where does it originate from? Weak puppets. Weak puppets. Men who cannot turn a generation around because they are so engrossed in their own sin. Friends, this passage reminds us that Israel needs someone like the Levite priest to come out of Bethlehem, but a priest who serves God wholeheartedly. Here is a priest, isn't it? He's come out of Bethlehem, but he's corrupted. But 1,200 years later, another priest who come out of Bethlehem, not corrupt, not a Levite, not from uh, the order of Aaron, no, a priest from the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our priest who comes out of Bethlehem. And, you know, Christ has served God and continues to serve God as our priest perfectly. And all in Jesus have been rescued from selfish service. Oh, friends, we don't have to serve. You know, you know the good news of this passage? We don't have to serve God like Micah to end God's favor. We can quite happily now hold up our hands. We are just as bad as Jonathan. We are just as bad as Micah. We can do that. Why? Because our service to God is accepted purely on the merit of Christ's blood. And you see, because our service is accepted purely on the merit of Christ's blood, all true children of God now must serve God in practice. It's not just saying, look, I'm like Jonathan, and therefore I remain like Jonathan. No, because you hold up your hand that you are like Jonathan, you can now come to the cross, lay your sins before the cross, and allow the blood of Christ to wipe you afresh. And if you've done that in Christ, of course, Christ has wiped your sins away. And so let Christ now, you know, enable you by the power of his spirit to save God as God wants you to serve. You see, the problem here is, friends, is that we don't abandon self-service by trying harder. I don't leave this evening to go home to say, well, you know, I need to be serving better, so I need to be trying better. I need to, you know, work very hard and avoid this sin and this... No, no, no. You're missing the point. This passage is flagging up why you need Jesus. In other words... The answer to self-service is not to try harder, but to look closer at Jesus. If you have been a Christian for some time, you know your view of Jesus tends to shrink over time if you don't spend time with him. When you are born again, initially, your view of Jesus is very big. You're just so excited. You can't miss Jesus everywhere. You see him everywhere. You're so excited. You spend time with him. But as you become a Christian for a while, The view begins to shrink, isn't it? Less time spending with him in prayer. And Jesus becomes small and small. And other priorities in life become big and big and big. Now, it's not that your theology is drifting. It's not that you've lost your... uh, you, You have taken on Kenneth Copeland's teachings or anything. No. It's just that you have begun to forget the wonder of Christ. The majesty of Christ. The cross... And so your faith has weakened. 
You see, when we do not spend time with Jesus, it becomes small in our eyes. And even the work we do for him becomes harder. It becomes more difficult. We are not excited about it. But the more we grow in love with Jesus and what he's done for us, the smaller our selfishness becomes. Jesus begins to take all the glory that he alone deserves. We are energized, excited to serve him. Not for him, not for us. So you need, friends, this evening to look at Jesus afresh. And not just this evening, every day. Let your eyes lean longer on that blood-stained cross. Move your heart next to his heart. See him there pierced for you. See all that he has done. Let the wonder of the cross move your heart in worship and adoration of him. And as you read the word, ponder on all that Christ has done. Let the word of God expose your sin and see the wonder of the cross of how it wipes away all that stains for you. And of course, sit regularly under preaching. Because as you sit under preaching, you grow in appreciating the Lord Jesus. And friends, as you begin to do these things, you, you begin to grow. The wonder of Christ does what? Takes you on what? An Holy Ghost gravitational pull. You are pulled to the cross by the Spirit of God. As you begin to enjoy Christ, serving Christ ceases to be about us, but about His glory. It is no longer a means to an end, but a privilege to serve the King. Well, may God help us to keep looking to Christ as we serve Him. Amen.